This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's hey, up? Kyle. Hey, Kyle. What's up? You guys doing good? That was um, so much better, JT. You. You're thank doing you. so much better. <laughs> you really did. You really did. And I, gosh, I, I, gosh, I want to laugh. So <laughs> I'm thinking there are times, listener, where we, we, <laughs> we have to double check that we were not recording our conversation before we recorded this yes. podcast. Cause, and we just had one of those where it's like, mm-hmm. I had to like keep looking down to make sure that it was not rolling. <laughs> Because I was straight up terrified of that audio existing. Not because we're doing bad things or saying bad bad. things. It's just in-house brother-sister conversation. And uh, yeah, we had one of those. And I'm going to be, I I, I just hope that I can make it through this episode without uh, falling back into that. So here we go. We are talking about the symbols of salvation, Romans 4, 9 through 25. We are in a long journey through the book of Romans, which will include this fall semester, spring semester, which is for us season seven, the season you're in, and season eight of Knowing Faith. A Uh, joyful journey, a delightful journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm thrilled. I mean, if we could spend three or four years. I well, think it's listen. going too fast. I got. I know that we have to go this fast, but I'm like, we're already in, at the end of Romans chapter four. Mm-hmm. I know it feels crazy. I just spent three weeks in Romans five one at Mosaic Church. So the fact that we got through Romans four in two sessions feels like we are blasting through uh, this book. But there's a lot to cover here, and a lot of yeah. really good things today. We're going to look at Romans four nine through twenty five. And JT, you are up, my friend, uh, for it. reading the passage. So give it a go. Let's do it. Romans chapter four, beginning in verse nine. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised." Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends upon faith in order that the promise may rest upon grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom you have believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. There you go. 
There you go. And also, I love that you dunked on Abraham long after his death <laughs> when you said it was as good as dead. <laughs> like I read it earlier and didn't laugh, but like you read it out loud and you're like, man, he, I didn't dunk on it. Like Paul is like, this guy was basically in the grave and he's supposed to have a kid. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I'm just glad nobody's ever said that my body is as good as dead. That does not sound like the kind of compliment you want to receive. No. Yeah. Uh, but it's also not the most substantive thing to explore in this passage. Uh, look, <laughs> um, here's, the, uh, here's the deal. First few verses, you're getting a lot of talk about circumcision. So, uh, JT, could you just give us uh, a little bit here on what role did circumcision play among Jew and Gentiles? Yeah, circumcision is a seal of faith. So you think back to Genesis 12, 15, and 17. Abraham is promised to be the father of many nations. He's going to, to have this offspring and this blessing. He's going to live with God forever. In essence, what God is doing in Genesis chapter 12 is saying, I'm going to restore my kingdom through you, and I'm going to do it through your offspring. Abraham believes that this is going to happen, believes that despite his old age and despite the barrenness of his wife, that, that God is going to do this. And this covenant is a big, important term in the Bible. This covenant is known as the Abrahamic covenant is sealed and signified by circumcision that he believed, which was counted him as righteousness. But now the circumcision comes into play as a sign of this gift. And now a big question for Jew Gentile relations is, and I, again, I, I think I've said this before on the podcast, one of the primary questions for the earliest church is, do you have to be Jewish in order to be Christian? Mm -hmm. And basically what Paul is saying here is with a big old massive 360 dunk is no, because yeah. Abraham is the father of the circumcised and uncircumcised. It is your faith that makes you righteous, not the works of the flesh, which in this case are circumcision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, circumcision, which, you know, had been like a boundary marker for Israel's covenant participation. It was also being used as a way of uh, the, the, the Jewish Christians kind of lording over their primacy right. or their supremacy over Gentile Christians. So you find out here that you really hear about it a lot in Galatians where you hear like, hey, it's a huge issue. I know for us, it's hard to, to imagine circumcision being an issue of division in the church. But in the life of the Jew-Gentile churches of the early church, it was absolutely a matter of division uh, uh, among Jewish and Gentile Christians. And so mm -hmm. why does it matter when Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness? Like, why is that such a point here? Well, it's because, anyway, Paul's going, well, how was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Well, it was not after, but before he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of it that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Why? So that he could rightfully be the father of those who would receive the righteousness of God who were uncircumcised and those who were circumcised. That's so right. again, we're trying to show that, yes, Abraham is Israel's forefather according to the flesh, but he is the father of both Jewish and Gentile Christians by virtue of being one who was righteous. And that righteousness came by virtue of having faith, yes, not by a circumcision. I saw a funny uh, – uh, meme the other day. <laughs> it was it was one of these guys like he has a scowl on his face. He's angry at whatever's going on. And it said, this is the guy, this is the Gentile Christian who was circumcised the day before the letter arrived in Galatia. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> That's good. And this is a, here's the thing, like to put it in historical context, this is a big deal for Paul. As somebody who's a Jew of Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, circumcised on the eighth day according to the law, but primarily ministering to Gentile Christians yeah. and in mm-hmm. Gentile contexts. So this is the, this is them working out their salvation with fear and trembling. Do you, if I want to be counted as righteous, do I need to be like Abraham? The answer is right. yes, because mm-hmm. he, he is, he is my father in the faith. But what does it mean to proceed in his footsteps or to follow after him? And Paul's saying it's not through works of the law. It's not through works of the flesh. It's not through circumcision and these sign markers that Kyle just mentioned. It's through believing that Jesus Christ has been crucified for our trespasses and risen to justify us in our faith. Absolutely. And and these signs and symbols of salvation in the Old Testament Every time you in- say symbols, I think you mean like symbols, like Psalm really? 150. Yeah, like I, no. I, I, you, I didn't see the title of the episode at first. You said symbols of faith, and I'm like, like loud clashing symbols, mm-hmm. like praise. Mm-hmm. Like, anyway, no, JT, no, I, I, think it, I get it now. Signs, yeah. um, I, I pick it up. Uh, but these signs of salvation in the Old Testament, a, a sign like circumcision, it's important. Paul, Paul is is walking a very fine line here. He's trying to 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 at the very same time honor what these signs were intended for without falling prey to the to the meaning that had become attached to them in the Jewish community. Yeah. It, there's nothing listen in the history of redemption circumcision is commanded by God as mm-hmm. a covenant marker. It's not mm-hmm. we, the, the, Paul's not saying here, hey, circumcision was a dumb thing. You shouldn't have done it. This is a bad idea. He's also not saying circumcision means nothing. He's mm-hmm. just saying listen Circumcision meant something. Mm-hmm. It is not determinative, though, of righteousness. It's not determinative of justification. It's not determinative of right standing with God. It, it was and can be a reflection of fidelity to Yahweh, but it is not, nor was it ever, the means of justification. Mm-hmm. And that is, gosh, I. Paul is a master, I think, in in these parts of Romans, they don't get as much attention as like five and eight will get at 12. That's fine. Those are very significant chapters. But it's in these moments right here where you see that Paul is a master synthesizer of Jewish and Gentile thought when it comes to Christian witness, because he is is walking a tightrope on how to be faithful to the Old Testament scriptures, the laws of God, the express clear commands of Yahweh, and at the same time not fall into the pit that so many Jewish Christians were falling into, including Peter. I mean, Peter mm-hmm. falls into this pit. This mm-hmm. is Paul's rebuke in Acts. Is like you see Peter, who again was a beloved disciple who had a huge ministry among Jewish Christians. Peter falls into this pit. He falls mm-hmm. into this misunderstanding. And Paul has to correct him. And so, I don't know, these chapters get, this pa- these passages get me really excited about looking at Paul because his prowess is on display as a synthesizer. Well, and, and Peter will sort of summarize what he takes from Paul's rebuke in, in, his, in his epistle when he says, don't return to the futile ways of your forefathers. Like, don't, mm-hmm. these are, and this is what, this is what Paul is getting at. It doesn't mean that everything that your forefathers knew and experienced was worthless, but in the way that it was um, 
factored in their minds with regard to righteousness, there was futility. And so what has he done? He's read his audience and he said, hey, what do you guys love? And they're like, we love the law. And he goes, great, the law is good, but here's what it, you know, here's what it does and what it doesn't do. What else do you love? We love Abraham. Great law. Abraham's great. Here's what he's good for. Here's what he's not good for. What else do you love? David. We love David. He's awesome. Okay, well, here's what David can do and here's what he couldn't. You know, and so now it's, what else do you love? You know what we love? We love circumcision. And so he's like, circumcision super. Yep. (laughs) That, I just will say. Or so I hear. That's going to be the best town bite of season seven right there. (laughs) This was it. That was it. That was the moment. (laughs) It doesn't go, it's it's not going to get any better than that right there. But what he's doing, I mean, he's, he's, he's toppling idolatry, right? Like he's coming at the things that, that, that were meant as a, as a means of communicating something true about God, whether it was people or other, or things and saying, Hey, you're, you're kind of worshiping the person or the thing instead of the one to whom it was pointing. Yeah. You've attributed meaning to it. That was never intended to be there. And that's what he really does in verse 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal. And he's using that word intentionally, but it's a seal of the righteousness that was already there. He had it by faith while he was uncircumcised. So he's making, it's almost like he's saying, guys, this isn't a chicken or the egg thing. This doesn't Mm -hmm. happen at the same time. As a matter of fact, faith precedes this work of the law that he participated in, Mm -hmm. which which he had this righteousness, which was sealed by the faith that he demonstrates in participating in circumcision. Yep, that's good. And in verse 12, we get a picture too of something that Paul is going to do. It's going to come to attention in a big way in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But you even now start to see Paul, he's making some distinctions with who Israel is. Now, I know that we might butt up against some of those dispensationalism issues. Why do you always have to bring that up, Kyle? No, I'm just, no, you brought it up last episode for no reason at all. This one actually, this passage actually has it in it. But, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. You're getting a picture. Paul is doing some distinguishing between who really are the true descendants of Abraham. I mean, you're going to get later on in Romans lines like not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. So mm-hmm. Paul is even now laying the groundwork, not just for Israel to reevaluate themselves in light of the Gentile Christians, but for Israel to consider that it is possible that not everybody who has been imbibed, enmeshed, caught up in practitioners of Judaism are the true recipients of the blessings that are promised to Abraham. And that's... That's going to be significant. So just put a little asterisk next to that in your notes and we'll move on here because I think it's important for us to continue. Abraham was counted righteous before circumcision. That's significant because Paul is trying to demonstrate that no work of the law, including circumcision, would have been sufficient to provide the righteousness that Abraham or any Israelite or any person would need. But in verse 13, we start talking about the promise. A little bit of a change here right? Mm -hmm. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the word did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. What does that mean? Where there is no (laughs) law, there is no transgression. Like, is that Kyle? (laughs) uh, Well, no, I mean, I think... 
I, I, I think it's a good question <laughs> because why are you laughing at me? This <laughs> Because hosting a podcast is hard. <laughs> it is. And I am continuously <laughs> mocked by it. The two of us. <laughs> well, Kyle, here's what I think it means. <laughs> Paul. <laughs> My favorite thing is when he just says, the- he finishes sentence and goes, right? <laughs> this is <laughs> right. so mean. JT, you're mean. Oh, you're on you're the one laughing. <laughs> you know what? You know what? I'm going to let both of you host an episode this season. No, I do not, do not want. Kyle, the, not people, want. the people love you. They adore you. Mm-hmm. You're oh. their favorite. Thank you. Well, mm-hmm. um, I think that is true. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Where were we? Okay, okay, we For were talking about the, the law, law bringing the law wrath. brings wrath. transgression. Yep. Mm-hmm. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Is this saying, hey, if the law had never been given, there would have been? It- and this is not a complicated question. I'm asking it for as a softball, which is basically this. <laughs> that the, the whole idea of transgression is that you are crossing over something that you should not cross. Paul, I am answering the question I asked now. What is happening on this episode? Uh, Paul is saying the law existed. Once the law came into play, your unrighteousness was shown to be transgressing that law. God yep. made his law abundantly clear. He told you exactly what he expected from people in this world. <laughs> God help me. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, now, JT, I want you to answer Kyle's question. <laughs> Please, for the love of all that is good and right in the world, give me your opinions on this verse, JT. <laughs> this is not the passage that I thought would crack us up this time. No, where I don't know where this is coming from. We made it oh, through all man. the circumcision without any circumcision jokes. Which, by at the all. way, I feel like I needed some credit for that. I read that. I was I was gonna say something, but I didn't want to trigger anything, so I just like was trying to let it go by. I mentioned a phrase that I was hoping was gonna be a softball for you in that circumcision passage. You didn't catch it. You rolled right through it. So that's, that's a sign of maturity. That's Christian maturity right yeah, we're, there. We're it is, here. right. Our sanctification is happening real time on a yeah, podcast. Oh, yeah. This audience. Yep. Kyle, Kyle, you just answered your question. We don't have to keep answering it. You, you answered it and you said it exactly right. The reality is here is uh, when God makes his law abundantly clear to his people. Uh, and before that, there is no technical trans, transgression for them to have mm-hmm. transgressed. But now the law has made known to them their sin, has been known to them their transgression, and how they have violated the law that they're now aware yep. of. Yep, absolutely. And right. so, Paul, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. Uh, they've been made aware of a law. They've broken that law. They've transgressed that law. The idea of transgression is that you've broken a boundary. God made these boundaries clear. Once the boundaries were made clear, the unrighteousness that we possess by nature was shown to not merely be an unrighteous standing, but it was shown to be an absolute transgression of God's holy standard. If you yep. go back to the episode where we talked about defining the righteousness of God, righteousness of God is not merely who he is. That's his character. Mm-hmm. It's also his standard. Right. That's the un, that's where the law comes in. We are certainly unrighteous by nature, meaning we do not match the character of God, but we are also unrighteous in a way that God is righteous because we have not kept God's perfect standard. We've disobeyed it. We have transgressed that standard. And so if it depended on works, Paul's saying, we would be in a lot of trouble because our obedience to the law will never be able to circumvent the consequence for our disobedience to the law, which is wrath. The law brings wrath. 
We're condemned. Mm -hmm. This is a verdict. It's a judgment. So in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He's driving home this distinction. It's not just for Jewish Christians who had the law and who tried to be obedient to the law. It's also to those who share the faith of Abraham, mm-hmm. who go, I, I, God, I hear you. I know I can't do this on my own, and I'm trusting that you're going to provide the righteousness that I need. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is Seminary President Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. So he says, he goes on, verse 17, as is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Okay, I'm sorry. I have to go back to verse 15 because I think it's confusing. Okay. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Is he saying that there was a time or there are people for whom there is no law, therefore there is no transgression? Can you be explicit? No, he's saying that for the law brings wrath. He's saying, listen, yeah. there, there, there was a time in which the law was not made revelatory clear. Yes. It was not a species of special revelation. Yes. God had not given the specifics of the law to Moses at Sinai. So the people had the natural law written on their hearts. Yeah. They had these things that they knew. And and in that sense, they were disobedient. They were unrighteous. Adam had already broken it. We're born with that inherited unrighteousness. But the law comes in and compounds that because it's no longer just the inherited unrighteousness of Adam or the breaking of a natural law or an unspoken law. It is the transgression of a clearly revealed divine law Mm -hmm. that Yahweh has given to his people Israel, who he released from bondage in Egypt. 
that's what I was looking for. Because I do think that sometimes you can read this and think, well, then why did he give us the law at all? Then we wouldn't have been guilty, you know, but there, the, we have always, there has always been a law to which we were held. It's just the degree to which it had been explicitly stated is what is changing here. Yes. And, and, and another, another thing, that's a, this is a really good thing uh, to bring up because it's something I've been wanting to say in, in, in relation to this, is that the law doesn't just come in to amplify the transgression. Right. It does do that. The law, in, when God gives it to Israel at Sinai and, and, uh, and, and invites them to live in it, having freed them from Egypt, the law is now their best pathway forward right. to mitigate the consequences of their unrighteous condition. We don't talk enough about that. The law is always talked about as the standard they fall short of, which is true. The reality, though, is the law is also, why does David meditate on the law day and night? Because he wants to dwell on his own condemnation? That's foolish. David meditates on the law day and night because David is aware that the law is not only the reminder of rescue, it's the promise and instruction to how to live in a broken world and have the least amount of collateral because of a pathway of obedience that you don't possess by nature or instinct. That's important, you know? I, yep. I, I do know. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, did you write? Did you have you have you have you ever written on this before, Jim? I feel like I just got plagiarized on my own show. (laughs) (laughs) I know plagiarism's all the rage right now, but I mean, this feels really direct. (laughs) Yeah, I'm actually there's a book there that I'm working on right now called uh, uh, 140 Words Uh, and 9 to 11 words to live by. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, but but Paul continues here and he talks about how, hey, listen, Abraham uh, believed in, uh, in hope. He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And here's a question I want to ask here. Romans 4.20. Yeah. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Is that a lie? Yeah, you read Genesis, you know, 12 to 17, you're like, but wait a second. He's regularly (laughs) saying, but God, are you really going to do this? You know? Yeah. I I have a question. Is this like just hagiography? Is it just like uh, a a washing over of Abraham's faults for the purposes of the point. I mean, what's Paul doing here when he says no unbelief made him waver? It seems like every time Abraham has a chance to waver, he wavers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Concerning the promise of God? Well, I mean, like in Genesis 15, or I could be misremembering, I don't have it in front of me. He he is like, wait a second, is this guy going to be my heir, Ishmael? Right, yep. Yeah, but I do think, I mean, I think he said in contrast to Sarah um, in, in those passages um, where her she's seen as the one who um, her doubt is an expression of uh, an unwillingness to believe, but his yeah. doubt is seen as an expression of a willingness to believe. Absolutely. And so I think that's the way that you read it is that uh, Abraham um, 
you know, even their laughter, I think we talked about this when we did our, our run through Genesis, his laughter is the laugh of a disbelief that is filled with expectancy. Hers mm-hmm. is the laughter of a disbelief that is filled with despair. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that's the, you know, that they're set in opposition to, to each other. They're set in contrast to each other as they both explore the answer to the question that's posed, is anything too hard for the Lord? Yeah. And so, uh, which is, you know, that's the question that's ultimately pointing to, can, can even our sins be dealt with. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And so that's, that's what I would say. I think that's well, exactly right, Jen. But if, even if you think, okay, so if he is saying in verse 20, that Abraham has the kind of faith that was unwavering concerning the promises of God, but yet mm-hmm. we see Abraham still wrestle, then it can mm-hmm. mean that there yes. is an appropriate place for faith, even yes. in un, or appropriate place for doubt, even in unwavering faith. I'm throwing myself wholeheartedly on the promises of God. I don't see it. I'm struggling, but I have an expectancy that what God has said is true and will come to pass. That's that's well said. And I think this is a a question I'm learning to tell uh, Bible students to ask as they come to difficult passages or seasons of life is that you can come asking, is God good? Uh, Or you can come asking, if God is good, then how should I look at this passage yeah. or this thing that's happening in my life. And those are two very different. If, you're, if your assumption is, okay, I don't feel that God is good right now, but I know he is, you know, based on the times when I wasn't in turmoil. Um, yeah. And so if my premise is that he is good, then then my press is to, um, is to reconcile what is currently happening to me or what I am reading in the scriptures with the notion that he is good. Um, and then that's just a different vantage point to be coming from. Um, mm-hmm. One is looking to, well, you might say one is looking to deconstruct and walk away and the other is looking to evaluate and stay close. Yeah, no, I think that that is really well said, all of that, both what Jen and JT just said. And I think one of the things that's significant is that when Abraham came to, uh, when it came to the birth of Isaac, he mm-hmm. believed. And when it came to the sacrifice, sacrifice. of Isaac, mm-hmm. He believed. Uh, mm-hmm. He believed that God would restore him from the dead. I think both of those things are at play here. I think Paul is blending together the two climactic moments of Abraham's belief, which is the promise of the child, and the uh, the really climactic moment of Abraham's life with Isaac, which is the sacrifice, the the laying forth. He believed that he would bring him back from the dead. He would call into existence yes. things that are not. And in that Good. moment, Abraham did believe, and he did not. That, that I think this idea of no distrust made him waver yep. concerning the promise of God. I, I don't want to be too like exercise too much canonical imagination here, but I think Paul has in mind Abraham's lifted hand with the knife Absolutely. above Isaac. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's even using a word here to talk about the hesitation, the pause Mm -hmm. that would accompany just the physiological reality of I've brought Isaac up this mountain and now he's laid out and I've got my knife in my hand. It's suspended above me. I'm trusting that God is going to keep his promises because I've seen that he's demonstrated he's righteous. Yes. He keeps his covenant promises. Yes. Yeah. I am 100% on board with this. I think when you think back on his story, you have to think, what are the, what are the, what are the main images in that story? And like we, yeah. we walked through it at a pretty slow clip. Well, I mean, it was pretty fast, but relatively speaking, we pulled out a lot of things from that story. But if you, if you quizzed people on what are the top two moments in the story of Abraham, um, it would be the birth of Isaac and the sacrifice of Isaac. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So just to kind of land the plane here, it says in verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, which is, again, has been Paul's whole point Mm -hmm. in Romans 4, but for ours also. And then here's the promise. Now Paul has kind of changing the perspective. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So in that last verse and a half, it will be counted to us. We, we're, we're getting a call back to the beginning of this chapter that Abraham was counted righteousness. The quote from Psalms, uh, the blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And now we're here and it's going, no, no, no. There is something that you want to have counted to you. It is the righteousness of God. Mm -hmm. You do not want to have your sins counted against you. In order to have the righteousness counted towards you, you must be like Abraham. You must believe in God, right? This God who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Now he's turning it from Abraham to the present circumstances that Abraham foreshadowed, who was delivered up for our trespasses, Again, those are those transgressions of, uh, of disobedience to the law and raised for our justification. And that phrase right there is really interesting, raised for our justification. When we think about justification, we often talk about it in cross imagery. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not, that's it's not that that's not here. The, the idea of delivered up for our trespasses Who was is crucified there. was what we would say. Yes. Right. And raised for our justification. Mm-hmm. That, that's an interesting way of saying this. And Richard Gaffin, who's a New Testament scholar out of Westminster, uh, he, he's got a great little book. It's very short on this phrase right here, raised for our justification. But basically, he, from here and then, and then elsewhere in the New Testament, tries to help us see that the declaration of righteousness that we receive, that righteousness of God that we receive uh, in Jesus is not merely the righteousness that comes with uh, uh, Christ taking our unrighteousness upon himself and giving us his righteousness on the cross. It's the vindication that Jesus makes. It is the uh, demonstration that Jesus Christ is who he says he was and that God has been faithful even all the way back to the promises of a chosen offspring that he gave to Eve and to Abraham. And this raise for our justification is not just Christ justifies us on the cross through paying the debt of sin, but Christ justifies us in his resurrection. And it's all of one act by vindicating that God has been faithful to keep his covenant promises to us and to the world. And I think that's really fascinating because mm-hmm. when I think about justification, I think about the cross. I don't think about the resurrection, but here it's that phrase is so tight. Mm-hmm. Have you guys ever explored that question? Well, I think it ties back. I would assume that it ties back to what we were just talking about in the story of Abraham with the sacrifice mm-hmm. of Isaac. That's a resurrection story. Right. You know, it says that they're gone for three days. For three days, Isaac is as good as dead, and then he's returned alive. And the entire time, Abraham believes that God is capable of of resurrection power. Right. And so um, basically, and I think that what we lose is we lose our sense of the significance of who Isaac is in the story, right? Yep. Like yep. Abraham, it may, for all we know, Abraham believes Isaac could be the one who crushes the head of the serpent. Yep. We don't know, you know, right. I mean, is this him is the question that's on repeat in their minds. Mm-hmm. And so um, the significance of the death of Isaac would be huge. It would mean God's promises were null and void. 
the return to life of Isaac, Isaac returning alive um, mm-hmm. is a symbol, is a, is a sign that God's covenant endures. Yep. And so it's a very strong type yep. of, of this fulfillment that we see in not just the death of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ. Yep. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I also wonder, I mean, we've already covered this in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, that we are justified, same language here, justif- justification, we are justified by his grace as a gift through mm-hmm. the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which should evoke temple language for us. For mm-hmm. us, The, the yeah. Greek term there is hilasterion. This is the mm-hmm. place where sacrifice is made. This is the the place where God's wrath is is satisfied because blood has been spilt. And in this case, it's Jesus's blood that has been spilt on our behalf. One of my friends at Southern ended up doing his PhD at Oxford on Hebrews, specifically on the location of the atonement. And he talks specifically about um, how we, again, Kyle, this is your point. We think about atonement happening at the cross or justification and righteousness. Mm -hmm. We do need to see this as one event, but we often forget part of, part of what Jesus is doing in his current, to use theological terminology in his session, in his current session right now is, is he ascends into heaven after his death, burial and resurrection to do what? Just to sit there and reign as Lord. Well, certainly he's doing that. But also, I think the author of Hebrews would tell us, no, he's actually going up into the heavenly tabernacle. The the real yep. tabernacle, the one we have here is just a, a picture. He's going up to the heavenly tabernacle to do what? To be offered up as the lamb of God who's been slain for the world to demonstrate to his father. My blood has been spilt on behalf of these sinners so that they might be justified. And I'm here as the Lamb of God coming into the heavenly tabernacle to be the Lamb of God who is offering justification for sinners. So it's not just that it's in his death or even just in his resurrection. It is that now in his current session, he is the Lamb of God forever slain for the world, which does what? It justifies us. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's can good. you can you re, can you tell us what you mean by current session for those who may not be familiar just with what, that? Just what Jesus is currently doing. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, I'm, I'm actually thinking I'm, I'm looking it up right now. So, Hebrews chapter this is chapter ten, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Hebrews chapter ten, mm-hmm. beginning in verse. I'll read it in verse eleven. So every priest stands daily at his service, mm-hmm. or in some sense, you could say session offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's verse 11. So the session of a priest is to go into the tabernacle with the blood of a lamb in order Mm -hmm. to propitiate and to satisfy the wrath of God so that God's people would be justified. But then in verse 12, the author of Hebrews says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single Mm -hmm. sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Well, where is he offering this sacrifice for sins? It's in his heavenly session. Mm-hmm. Based upon what he does on the cross and based upon his perfect life lived, he is now in the heavenly tabernacle as a priest and also as an offering, meaning that we now have a single offering that has forever perfected those of us who believe. Yeah. Yep. I was also pointing to the idea that session means having sat down. So like yes. if a court is in session, it means they're seated. And so mm-hmm. he is seated in the heavenlies. And, yep. and so it's an ongoing session. That's good. Yeah, that's good. That's good, guys. The next hey, episode, we, we oh, pulled yeah, it together. We, we made did. it in the end. I feel so proud of us. We, we were in a nosedive <laughs> and I'm going to say it was y'all's fault. <laughs> Um, this is, you know, I uh, had to put on my kindergarten teacher hat there and just press forward, but mm-hmm. say, la vie. Great. 
Thank you. Uh, in our next episode, we're finally going to get to Romans chapter five. We're going to dive all in on the doctrine of justification. We've got some great guests coming up. Dr. Jarvis Williams, Dr. Tom Schreiner, Courtney Doctor, some great guests to come up. And if you're looking to find us on social media, you can find us at Knowing Faith Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. If you're looking for some cool stuff that's more behind the scenes, you can check us out at Patreon. We've got a Knowing Faith Patreon over there. And we do weekly posts, monthly newsletters, early ad-free episodes. So check all that stuff out over there. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace.